In my teenage years, I remember the moment when I was able to walk onto the turf at the Sydney Cricket Ground. I was part of a cricket team, a high school cricket team, that almost made it to the final of the Davidson Shield. We made it to the semi-final, then got knocked out. The final team were able to play on the SCG. And I remember the moment of walking into what would be regarded as hallowed ground, even sacred turf. The Adelaide Oval has a very similar sense of uh, awe about it, although it has changed somewhat in recent years. When we come across a passage like the Transfiguration, I have that same sense of stepping into something very sacred, a moment, a space that defies our easy interpretation. In fact, you almost don't want to try and overly rationalise it, but to experience it, to have a sense of touching something that is much greater than ourselves. As we come in our year, our cycle that we follow, we now come to a significant transition point. Since the time of Advent and Christmas, a period that's sometimes known as Epiphany, in other cycles it's got the very exotic name of Ordinary Sundays. Um, But it traces the, uh, the baptism of Jesus, the commencement of his public ministry, and recent weeks we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And this week, this moment, we have a very significant transition point. Tran- uh, Transfiguration Sunday concludes this opening period, which is characterised by the green, and we're about to move into Lent. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and we'll be having a special Ash Wednesday service here in our 10.30 service on Wednesday to mark it. As you reflect on this passage, I want to draw a number of different lenses of ways of viewing just why it is such a profound and significant event. I started, as I tend to do, to see what images we can draw and uh, some of the classic uh, painters, Raphael and Titian and others, did enormous classical pieces. I saw a number of stained glass windows conveyed elements of the transfiguration. And I rather like this one that I came across, which is, has a very stylized sense of uh, the connection between the heavens and the earth. But as I looked around, I settled on uh, this piece by a Filipino artist. And uh, sometimes you just go with my instinct rather than trying to overly analyse But what I like is that it it sort of grounds it very much in the humanity at the bottom of of just beholding something which is almost, it is fearful, but the brightness at the same time. My eye was drawn to just something that is otherworldly, a transfiguration that is beyond our own experience to say, well, I can picture exactly what it looks like. But also the sense that the reaction of Peter and James and John to saying it's too much, then Jesus' words, do not be afraid. Now I'm going to come back to those at the conclusion today. What we see in this moment is characteristic of Jesus' ministry in a number of other ways. When Jesus entered the world as God's only son, only begotten son, 
And as he engaged with different villages and homes and uh, individuals and families and all manner of of, uh, people who engaged, Jesus brought with him a touch of heaven. So the remarkable healings, the uh, transformative life that Jesus brought, the renewal, the restoration, it's a glimpse of what is to come. Jesus brought a touch of heaven with him in his very presence as he moved around. And that's why the excitement grew around Jesus. They could glimpse something that is extraordinary, but that extraordinary is located in the midst of the ordinary. So as we explore this image, the three lenses that I want to use is initially to see the way in which Matthew locates this story, not out of the blue, but as part of this narrative about Jesus. So we'll look at Matthew. Then I want to step back briefly and look at some of the allusions that are very clear to the wider biblical landscape. How this is something that was had precedence beforehand and Jesus is stepping into a, a remarkable working of God, something that's called a theophany, and a, a, an appearance of God in a dramatic way. And then finally, I want to just reflect on what does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for the church of the day? What does it mean for us in our own day and time? So, let's take a look at the passage itself. Where it comes in the narrative, as it's framed in uh, Matthew, and Matthew follows Mark, and Luke also follows in the same general pattern. Most of Jesus' ministry to this point has been up in the northern region around Galilee. And uh, Jesus has now wandered even further afield, up towards Caesarea Philippi, outside any territory where there's much of a Jewish presence. And uh, Caesarea Philippi, from this name, Caesarea is committed, devoted to the emperor, the Kaiser, um, hence the name Caesarea. And Philippi draws the, the delight in Hellenistic culture, all things Greek and the Greek culture. The area was actually known in Latin as Panea, the region of Pan. So Anain, it's another area in which it was believed that the gods inhabited in some special way. And this is the space that Jesus is now moving into. Now, if we followed the daily readings in the last week, we would have been following the readings of uh, Jesus on the roads to Caesarea Philippi, and he speaks to the disciples as they're walking. And he throws the question out, who do people say that I am? That was an easier question to answer because it's just reporting. Some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah. Then Jesus throws the searching question at them. Who do you say that I am? In effect, he's saying, you've been following me around, you've been seeing these things, you've been hearing these things, I've been taking you aside and teaching you some mysteries. Who do you say that I am? And we all know, Peter puts his hand up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. And Jesus commends him. And you can imagine Peter has that extra spring in his step at that moment, saying, yes. But he comes crushing down. As Jesus then changes his direction, he literally changes route. He stops travelling towards Caesarea Philippi and he turns his attention to Jerusalem and said, the work that I've come to do as the Messiah now must take place in Jerusalem. 
and it involved me being handed over. I'll be beaten and I'll be killed. It's the first of three times in which Jesus then introduced that whole dimension. And Peter takes them aside and rebuked Jesus. Said, no, Lord, you've got it wrong. Let me tell you what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to be like David. He's supposed to have an army. He's supposed to throw the Romans out. And those searing words as Jesus in the hearing of the disciples looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Why is he so strong? Because what he has just said is what Satan had offered Jesus in the temptations. Satan had said to Jesus, you just bow down to me. There's an easier way. You don't need to go to that whole thing in Jerusalem. Just bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdom. And Jesus set aside from that. That would be disobedient to the Father. And that's what Peter is suggesting. There's an easier way than rather than the path that would lead Jesus to the cross. Then Jesus turns and looks at the followers. Said, well, I'm heading to Jerusalem. You've heard what I've come to do. Who's going to come with me? And be aware that if you come with me, you'll need to carry your own cross. There's a cost to it of discipleship. It's not all going to be easy. There'll be sacrifices. This is the mission of God that He's called us to do, and it's not just about our receiving blessings all the time. But who would do anything other? So then Jesus then makes these promises. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Then Jesus concludes... For what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Jesus is saying, I know it's going to be costly. I can't promise you that you'll be immune from the problems and the realities and the challenges. In fact, they'll increase because of my name. But trust me with your life, trust me with your soul, and I will give you eternity. That is my promise to you. Then Jesus concludes this section as, as Matthew records it. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that raises questions as to what does Jesus mean by the coming of his kingdom. Uh, for other reasons, I believe it actually is talking about the resurrection. This is the moment in which the kingdom breaks in and, and the whole new era of God's work commences. And the way in which it uh, concludes the transfiguration episode sort of uh, parallels it. So then we have that moment in which it says, and they walk for six days almost imagine them walking in silence for six days as they're trying to process <laughs> what this means. So it comes to it and then Matthew picks it up. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, 
and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. In this pivotal moment where they've changed the direction and Jesus has given them that uh, dreadful but amazing sense of his mission as calling and he's given the challenge to trust me with this. I read this as Peter, James and John representing the wider group of disciples and them representing all the followers who would follow Jesus needed to have a glimpse that this amazing promise that Jesus has just made has the blessing of God, has God's hand upon it in this moment. Jesus is the real thing. He's no charlatan. He's not deluded. He is to be trusted. So we have this transfiguration taken. And then appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter thought, wow. This is wonderful. Let's keep doing it. Let's put up a camp. Make a camp. I can make free, free, free shelters for you. Let's stay here. You can just imagine Peter's enthusiasm and Jesus having a quiet sense of, uh, yep, no. But while he was still speaking, a bright light covered them and a voice from the cloud, the voice of God, previously only heard at Jesus' baptism, now heard at this pivotal moment, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. These are words that have been passed on to us, to all who follow Jesus. Trust him. He is the real thing. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, and Jesus came. This amazing, transfigured, glorious, cosmic Jesus. And touched them. Touched them on the shoulder. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And they looked up. They saw no one except Jesus. Now as we come through these events we recognise that this is something beyond any usual experience. This is what is literally a mountaintop experience. The imagery is that of a Shekinah. Shekinah is the word uh, for the glorious, the manifestation of God. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. That's where I actually think that the, the coming of the kingdom the Son of Man will come into his kingdom is the same moment as the Son of Man being raised from the dead. The Shekinah was uh, experienced in the Old Testament story in the journey from Egypt towards the Promised Land. The Shekinah uh, hovered at a tent of meeting adjacent to the tabernacle. The Shekinah, the glory of God, was seen through thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai, through the coming of a cloud and of dazzling light. So the imagery here is, is something that we recognise is what, how God has acted at these key pivotal moments when he's inaugurating something new as part of his plan and his purpose. And this cloud settles. The cloud that had guided them in their journeys now settled upon the mountain. 
you see the background to it and you can see the echoes in Exodus 24 when Moses went up on the mountain the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud you can see that this is echoing and Matthew has already been highlighting the parallels between Moses and Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater teacher, the one who gathers the people on the mountain and gives them the new law, the new covenant, the new teaching about being the people of God. So this is true to form in that sense. We also remember um, that in uh, the final the final verses of the Old Testament, as we have it in our particular order of the canon, where Malachi finishes it, Malachi chapter 4 finishes with these words, Remember the law of my servant Moses and the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah, who had actually had his ministry and had gone up into the heavens in the fiery chariot, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So having seen Moses and Elijah, the passage goes on to saying, so is this the fulfilment of what, Jesus, what the promises had been? And Jesus said, yes. And Elijah has returned. And he talks about Elijah identifying him with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the new and greater Elijah preparing the way. But he was pointing to the one who would have the ultimate sacrifice, speaking of himself. This moment is inaugurating a significant new era in the, in the way in which God's salvation is coming about. But one final background and allusion that tells us a lot about Jesus. When Jesus identified who he was, people said, well, you're a rabbi, you're, um, you're maybe this Messiah, as Peter had said. You know, Jesus' preferred way of speaking himself wasn't, I'm the Messiah. He spoke of himself as the Son of Man. And the figure of the Son of Man that Jesus said, now that describes most closely who, what I'm about, comes from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 reads like this. It's a dramatic scene in which the heaven is opened up. And as I looked, Daniel says in his dream, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. And in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now we can see this transfiguration is the realization of that vision that Daniel had. The one like a son of man whose face is bright and is radiant he was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is who we gather before on Transfiguration Sunday. Just as the early church needed to hear this as they were threatened by the Roman Empire and by armies and by military power, they needed to hear that this is the greater kingdom. As we live in a world that is threatened by armies and fear and empire building, 
we need to hear the same message. We are following the greater king. We are following the one who has a power and authority unlike any other. And as we gather together in worship, we also remind ourselves of the same words that have now been passed on to us. This is my beloved son that we are gathering in his presence. This is his table we're coming before with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him above any other voices. We are embarking on our journey. We're about to enter into Lent. But we are following one whom we can be confident that we give our lives, our loyalty, and we seek to follow, both personally and as individuals. Let our worship, as we gather, be just that, bridging of heaven and earth. May we glimpse through our readings, through our prayers, through our music, and through the various ministries we bring, for acts of hospitality and kindness and being there for each other. May we glimpse heaven on earth, because that is our calling as God's people, as his church. I want to conclude with a uh, piece, and I hope I brought it with me. I'm not sure I did. Yes, I did. This is a reflection by an English poet called Mountain Guide. I invite you just to close your eyes as I reflect on this, this bit of uh, poetry. For that one moment in and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet. The daily veil that covers the sublime in darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leaped up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within, a sudden blaze of long extinguished hope, trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are.